Welcome to Asbury United Methodist Church. My name is Pastor Will. Thanks for joining our podcast. This is where you'll be able to find all of our sermons, as well as special devotionals and interviews. We hope these messages inspire hope and bring support as you grow on your journey of faith. If you have any questions, or if you want further conversation, or if you simply like what you hear, connect with Asbury through our Facebook page or by checking our website at asburymaitland.org. Well, we live in a world of social media, don't we? Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok. And so it's pretty common these days to hear of a post going viral. And what that basically means for the post to go viral is that the post circles rapidly online and quickly grabs a lot of people's attention. And so there was a post that went viral a couple of years ago in 2021. In fact, maybe some of you saw this post. The post was made by a young woman who had just finished college at the University of California, San Diego. And in her graduation picture, you could see this picture up here in the monitors, she is standing in a farm field with her immigrant parents, thanking them for all that they did to make her education from college possible. As Jennifer Relka was preparing to finish college, and again, she graduated from the University of California, San Diego, she wanted to properly thank her parents. Her parents had grown up uh, in Mexico, laboring in the farm fields. And then when they came to the United States, um, they had to give up their dreams of becoming doctors and pursuing other professional careers because those options simply were not available to them. Instead, what they did is they went to the farm fields in California and they worked as hard as they possibly could so that their daughters one day might have, might have those opportunities that they never did. This is what Jennifer Roca says about her parents and why she chose to go to the farm fields for this photograph. The whole reason I wanted to go back to the fields with my parents is because I wouldn't have the degree and the diploma if it wasn't for them. They sacrificed their backs, their sweat, their early mornings, late afternoons, working cold winters, hot summers, just to give me and my sisters an education. And so it's unsurprising that Jennifer Roca's post went viral and touched the hearts of so many people, and yet she said that the feedback she appreciates most is from other children of immigrants who, like her, have reaped the reward of their parents' backbreaking work. Well, there is no question that Jennifer Roca's parents sacrificed a great deal for their daughter. And the reason I share this powerful story is that this story gives us a really good window into the concept of love-driven sacrifice, love-driven sacrifice, and we're going to be talking about that at length today. And so we are currently engaged in a sermon series here at Asbury called 24 Hours That Changed the World, in which we are exploring, we are examining uh, the last 24 hours of Jesus' earthly life. We're trying to understand, we're trying to wrap our brains around all the events that happened during those 24 hours, because those 24 hours changed the world, but not only did they change the world, they continue to change us today in the 21st century. And what I want to do first as we dive into today, today's sermon, uh, we're in part five of this seven-part series. We're going to wrap up the series on Easter Sunday, a couple of weeks from now. But what I want to do first is I want to recap where we are, recap where we are. So, we started off the sermon series by talking about the events of Holy Thursday, uh, also called Maundy Thursday, the day before Good Friday. Um, during that day, or during that evening, Jesus gathers in the upper room with his disciples, 
and they celebrate the Passover meal. Now, the Passover, as we said, is incredibly important for Jews uh, because the Passover commemorates one of the central acts of the Old Testament. God liberating the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt and making covenant to be their sovereign God. By the time Jesus came among us 2,000 years ago, Jews had been observing Passover for at least 1,200 years, if not longer. But then during the course of that meal, which was deeply steeped in tradition and ritual, Jesus changes everything when he institutes what we call in the church Holy Communion, or some churches call it the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper. What does Jesus do? Well, he breaks a loaf of bread, he pours a cup of wine, and in breaking the bread and pouring the wine, he signals to the disciples that in a few hours, his body's going to be broken, his blood's going to be spilled on the cross, so that all human beings, not just the people of Israel, not just the disciples, but all humanity might be delivered from another kind of slavery. The Israelites were delivered from slavery to the Egyptians, but through Jesus' sacrifice, all of us are delivered from a different kind of slavery, slavery to sin and death. The disciples didn't necessarily understand all this at the time, but nevertheless, they ate. While one day earlier, on Wednesday, Judas had agreed to betray Jesus to the religious authorities who were fed up with Jesus, wanted to see him executed, he had agreed to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And so during the meal, Judas gets up and he steals into the night. Meanwhile, Jesus goes with the other 11 disciples where? To the Garden of Gethsemane. And so it's in Gethsemane that Jesus falls on the ground. He begs God, he pleads with God the Father to be spared from the cross. He says, Father, if it's possible, please take this cup of suffering away from me. But then he follows up that statement by saying, not my will be done, your will be done. In other words, he humbly submits himself to the Father's will. He humbly submits himself to God's plan. Well, as soon as Jesus prays that prayer, Judas shows up with a band of soldiers to arrest Jesus. The soldiers arrest Jesus. Uh, the disciples run away, fleeing for their own lives, their own safety. And then the soldiers bring Jesus before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was a council of how many elders? Do you remember? 71. 71 elders. And these 71 elders ruled over the religious affairs of the people of Israel. During this unorthodox, unusual trial, the Sanhedrin finds Jesus guilty of the crime of blasphemy for claiming to be God's son, equating himself with the God of Israel, and they condemn Jesus to death. The issue is, at this time, 2,000 years ago, Israel is an occupied territory of the Roman Empire. And while Rome allowed the Jewish people to practice their faith, they did not allow the Jewish people to carry out executions. Only Rome could authorize executions. So recognizing this, what the religious leaders do next is they bind Jesus up early Friday morning, what we now call Good Friday, they bring Jesus to the Roman governor of Judea. What was his name? Pontius, Pontius Pilate. And Pontius Pilate interviews Jesus, questions Jesus, and finds no basis of charging him, and yet he authorizes the execution, the crucifixion, because he realizes that the crowd is all worked up, and, and he wants to keep the peace and maintain the peace. Now, in the sermon series, we're primarily drawing from the Gospel of Mark. Uh, there are four Gospels in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the four Gospels document the story of Jesus. Now, we're primarily drawing from Mark, but Luke gives us a detail in his gospel that Mark doesn't give. 
Luke tells us that as Jesus is being interviewed by Pontius Pilate, Pontius Pilate comes to understand that Jesus is from Galilee. Remember, where did Jesus grow up? What was the town called? Nazareth, which is a part of Galilee up in the north. Pilate's in charge of Judea in the south. Herod Antipas is in charge of Galilee. So technically, Jesus is subject to Herod. Now, Herod just so happens to be in Jerusalem at this time. So he sends Jesus to Herod. Herod questions Jesus, doesn't want to charge him, sends him back to Pontius Pilate, who at that point reluctantly authorizes the flogging and crucifixion of Jesus. So that brings us to where we are today in the sermon series. Our scripture passage is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15, uh, verses 15 through 23. If you want to follow along, uh, these words are up here on the screen. Uh, you can also, uh, we have pew Bibles in front of you. You can uh, open up one of those Bibles to this passage. It says, so to pacify the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He ordered Jesus flogged with a lead-tip whip, then turned him over to the Roman soldiers to be crucified. The soldiers took Jesus into the courtyard of the governor's headquarters, called the Praetorium, and called out the entire regiment. They dressed him in a purple robe, and they wove thorn branches into a crown and put it on his head. Then they saluted him and taunted, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him on the head with a reed stick, spit on him, and dropped to their knees in mock worship. When they were finally tired of mocking him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him again. Then they led him away to be crucified. A passerby named Simon, who was from Cyrene, was coming in from the countryside just then, and the soldiers forced him to carry Jesus' cross. Simon was the father of Alexander and Rufus, and they brought Jesus to a place called Gogotha, which means place of the skull. They offered him wine drugged with myrrh, but he refused it. This is the word of God for the people of God, to which we all say, thanks be to God. I do want to give a quick warning about this sermon. I don't intend to draw a lot of attention to violence and gore because I understand that these are disturbing topics that make us uncomfortable. That being said, this sermon series is on the last 24 hours of Jesus' earthly life, and the simple reality is it is impossible to talk about the last 24 hours of Jesus' earthly life without talking about, at least to a degree, the torture that Jesus endured. So we're not going to dwell on this. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but we are going to highlight it. So the first form of torture that Mark writes about here is flogging. Flogging. Now, flogging was commonly practiced in Jesus' day 2,000 years ago. Uh, Jews as well as Romans utilized it. And I'm sure we're all familiar with the concept of flogging. It's the act of hitting somebody with a stick or a whip as a form of punishment or torture. And the sort of flogging that Jesus endures here that Mark writes about, it was so brutal, it was so horrific, so monstrous, that it was fairly common for the person, the, the prisoner, to die before even making it to their crucifixion. In fact, I suspect that that's the reason that Jesus died before the other two criminals who were crucified beside him. Why did Jesus die before they did? Well, by the time Jesus made it to his crucifixion, he had lost so much blood, it was in such pain and distress from the flogging. And the flogging that Jesus endures 
actually calls to mind the words of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah gave this message hundreds and hundreds of years beforehand. I offer my back to those who beat me, and my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mockery and spitting. And so in this text from Mark, Jesus fulfills Isaiah's prophetic message by offering his own back to those who strike him. Now, what Mark doesn't mention that Isaiah talks about here is offering my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. Now, to our knowledge, Jesus' beard isn't being pulled out here. So how do we make sense of those words from Isaiah? Well, bear in mind that thousands of years ago in ancient Jewish culture, beards were extremely important to men. Uh, they were very important. Beards were considered a source of honor and pride. And so to have your beard pulled out meant that your enemy degraded and humiliated you in pretty much the worst possible way. And actually, we see an example of this in the Old Testament. For instance, listen to what it says here. This is from the book of 2 Samuel. Uh, David is king over Israel, and at one point, David's men are seized and humiliated by their enemy. This is what it says here in 2 Samuel. So Hanan seized David's ambassadors and shaved off half of each man's beard, cut off their robes at the buttocks, and sent them back to David in shame. When David heard what had happened, he sent messengers to tell the men, stay at Jericho until your beards grow out and then come back. In other words, don't come back home immediately. Let your beards grow back first. For they felt deep shame because of their appearance. David's men are humiliated by their enemy. So when Isaiah says, I offered my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard, Jesus also fulfills these words. Not literally, but he fulfills them figuratively in the sense that Jesus is degraded. He's humiliated. He doesn't just suffer physical torture. So often we focus on the physical torture that Jesus endured. And certainly he was tortured physically, but not just physically, emotionally. He suffered emotional torture. And let's be clear about something, folks. Emotional torture is just as bad, isn't it? Ask anybody who's ever been a victim of emotional abuse or anybody who's ever been bullied. They'll be sure to tell you that the scars from those events, they run deep. Uh, over the uh, spring break holiday, uh, Amanda's mom was kind enough to watch Hannah and Noah. And so we went to Melbourne, we dropped the kids off at Amanda's mom's house, and we came back to Maitland, and we were able to have the week uh, to ourselves. Well, one afternoon, Amanda was in the bedroom doing something, and I was just sitting on the couch, and I was watching TV, just flipping through the channels. And suddenly, I came, I came across this movie that I hadn't seen in a number of years. Uh, the movie came out uh, in 1999, so it was released a number of years ago. The movie is called Never Been Kissed. Anybody ever watched Never Been Kissed before? It's a romantic comedy, so if you're somebody who likes romantic comedies, you'll probably enjoy this movie. But let me give us the basic plot. The movie stars, and we have a picture of this, movie stars this actress. What's her name? Drew Barrymore, very gifted actress. And Drew Barrymore plays the lead role of Josie Geller. Josie Geller. Josie is 25 years old, and she works for a Chicago newspaper. She's a junior copywriter. Only Josie does not want to be a junior copywriter at the newspaper. 
She wants to be a reporter. That's her dream. That's her ambition. She wants to report on the big, groundbreaking stories. So she is given her first assignment to be a reporter by her boss. Report on what life is like as a high school student. And so what does she do? She goes undercover. Uh, she is able to get away with this as a 25-year-old and disguise herself as a high school student. So she enrolls at a, at a local high school to kind of get a sense of what life is like. And during her investigation, she begins to recall traumatic events that she endured when she was in high school. Like, for example, when the most popular guy at the school, who she had a crush on, who she wrote a poem for, asked her to prom. But as it turns out, it's nothing but a cruel joke. There's a scene that I want us to watch, and I'll give you a heads up. This is not an easy scene, but take a look. Not an easy scene to watch. In fact, I almost don't want to share it with you. But ultimately, I decided to do so just to highlight to us how bad emotional torture can be. Even as a 25-year-old, removed from high school, Josie finds herself sitting in the bathroom, recalling that traumatic event. Emotional scars run deep. Jesus endures emotional torture. Clearly, the soldiers who are preparing to crucify him, they're not just content with tearing into his flesh. They also want to dehumanize him and break his spirit. And so Mark tells us in his gospel that the soldiers call out the entire regiment. Check it out again. This is from verse 16, chapter 15 of Mark. The soldiers took Jesus into the courtyard of the governor's headquarters called the Praetorium and called out the entire regiment. Some translations read they called out the entire cohort uh, a Roman cohort or regiment typically consisted of three to six hundred soldiers. Three to six hundred soldiers. Just wrap your brain around that figure. This is probably all the soldiers stationed at the at Pilate's headquarters at the Antonio Fortress. These soldiers come to abuse Jesus, who has been accused of seeking to lead an insurrection against their emperor and claiming to be king. So they're going to show him what kind of king they think he is. And so what they do is they strip him naked. They beat him. They put a robe on his bloodied back, and the robe is purple, the color of royalty. And then they hold a mock coronation in honor of their king. But of course, for a coronation to happen, there has to be what? A crown. And so what do they do? 
They fasten a crown of thorns. Now, folks, I imagine that all of us have touched a thorn by accident while working in the garden. We know how painful it is to touch a thorn. Well, imagine dozens of thorns pressing in to the most sensitive part of your skull. And then what the soldiers do is they hit Jesus with a reed stick, they spit in his face, and then they bow down in mock worship. Hail, the king of the Jews. The sarcasm dripping from their lips. And then finally, after torturing Jesus physically and emotionally, to top it all off, they lead Jesus away to be crucified. Now, the crucifixion, according to Mark, happens on a hill called Golgotha. In Aramaic, Aramaic was the language of Jesus and the disciples. In Aramaic, Golgotha means place of the skull. Now, the Latin word for skull is Calvaria. So sometimes we call Golgotha what? Calvary. Calvary, or Golgotha, was located at least a third of a mile away from the Antonio Fortress where Jesus was tortured. And so in Jesus' weakened state, this would have taken at least 30 minutes. And also Jesus is forced to carry his own cross, probably just a cross beam, as the vertical beam would have probably already been in place at the site of the execution. Who knows how heavy that cross beam was? And that was just another way of inflicting torture on the person who was going to be crucified having them carry their own cross while the crowd is looking on. And actually, Jesus isn't strong enough to do it. He is so weak. He has lost so much blood. He's in such distress. He can't carry his own cross. We see Jesus' humanity here. And so what they do is they enlist a passerby to help. What was his name? Simon of Cyrene. Now, this is not Simon Peter. This is not one of the disciples. This is a gentleman who only shows up here at the crucifixion of Jesus. Now, one thing we know about Simon of Cyrene is he's from Cyrene. Uh, we have a map of Cyrene up here in the monitors. Um, Cyrene is located in North Libya, uh, just west of Egypt. It's a part of Africa. And in all likelihood, Simon was in Jerusalem celebrating the Passover, probably a Jewish man, and now finds himself caught up in the drama of the crucifixion. And it's not difficult to imagine how all of this must have affected Simon. Do you see an innocent man suffer and die? And yet, looking back on all this, we know that God did all of this voluntarily, out of love. Folks, during the last 24 hours of Jesus' earthly life, what God does is God puts love under a magnifying glass. God essentially says to you and me, hey, do you want to know how much I love you? This is how much I love you. This is what I am willing to endure this is the measure to which I'm willing to go to be in a relationship with you. I'm willing to endure physical torture, emotional torture, mental suffering, anguish, distress, pain, hardship, difficulty, crucifixion on a Roman cross so that you and I might be one, so that we might live together forever. Um, last week we talked about the atonement, and we talked about one model of the atonement, Atonement basically means how the cross of Jesus makes us one with God. Atonement literally means at one minute. And so there are different models, different theories of making sense of the atonement and what happened at the cross. One model that we discussed last week is what's called substitutionary atonement. And in substitutionary atonement, we actually see this with Barabbas because Barabbas, the criminal, he walks away free while Jesus takes his place. And Jesus, in a sense, he takes our place. He is our substitute. He takes the debt that you and I deserved. 
that's only one model of the atonement that the New Testament gives us. Another model that's explained up here, and this model was made popular by a guy named Peter Abelard during the Middle Ages, it's called moral exemplar or moral influence. In this model, the suffering and death of Jesus accomplished two things. Number one, they expose human evil. Look at all the evil things that we human beings did to God. But number two, the suffering and death of Jesus also demonstrate God's love. Look at what God was willing to endure for our sake. And we, in turn, we are so inspired by this love. We are so moved by this love and compelled by this love that by God's grace, we give ourselves over to God and we choose to live as followers of Jesus Christ. And we actually see this model of the atonement, moral influence or moral exemplar, we see this model come into focus in this passage with Simon of Cyrene. This gentleman who is seemingly in the wrong place at the wrong time, we believe that he goes on to become a follower of Jesus. Why do we believe that? I'm so glad you asked that question. Because he only shows up here at the crucifixion, so how do we, how do we know that? Mark actually gives us a hint. Listen again to what Mark says here in verse 16. It's really easy to miss this, so listen carefully. A passerby named Simon, who was from Cyrene, was coming in from the countryside just then, and the soldiers forced him to carry Jesus' cross. What does Mark say next? Simon was the father of who? Alexander and Rufus. Simon was the father of Alexander and Rufus. Now, what's interesting is Simon of Cyrene is mentioned by three of the gospel writers. He's mentioned by Matthew. He's mentioned by Mark. He's mentioned by Luke. Only Mark mentions the names of Simon's sons. Now, that's pretty interesting because Mark is the shortest of all the gospels. Mark is very to the point, so we would think that Mark doesn't get into all those details. Matthew's gospel is 28 chapters. Luke's gospel is 24 chapters. Mark is 16 chapters. He tells us the names of his sons. What does that tell us? That tells us that the community Mark is writing to, and we believe that Mark's gospel was probably written around 65 AD, about 30 years after Jesus, that this community is familiar with both these men, Alexander and Rufus. Um, tradition tells us that Mark wrote his gospel in Rome, taking his information from the disciple Peter, as Peter was in prison in Rome and awaiting execution during the reign of Nero, who was the emperor. Well, check out what the apostle Paul says in Romans 16 in his letter to this community in Rome. Greet Rufus. At the end of this letter, Paul's giving a whole bunch of greetings. Greet Rufus, whom the Lord picked out to be his very own, and also his dear mother, who has been a mother to me. Folks, could it be that this Rufus whom Paul is writing, or this community Paul is writing to, Paul mentions Rufus, could it be that this Rufus is the son of Simon and Cyrene? And could it be that this mother Paul talks about, who was a mother to Paul, was Simon's wife? If so, it's clear that Simon of Cyrene was so moved, so inspired by the suffering and death of Jesus that these events not only compelled him to become a Christian, but the members of his family. And that's what the cross of Jesus does. The cross of Jesus inspires us to such a degree that we are forever changed. Amen? We are never, ever the same.
How could we be? Uh, Tammy Duckworth, uh, maybe that's a familiar name to you. Tammy Duckworth is an American politician and a junior senator serving the state of Illinois. Uh, we have her pictures up here on the monitors. But in November of 2004, Tammy Duckworth was an Army reservist co-piloting a Black Hawk helicopter in Iraq. On November 12th of 2004, Duckworth's chopper was struck by a grenade that exploded at her feet, severing both legs and crushing her arm. By the time the helicopter crash-landed, Duckworth appeared dead. The soldiers with her knew that the enemy would be on the way to the crash site and that if they were captured, they would most likely be killed. But in the U.S. military, no one gets left behind. At great risk to themselves, they pulled Duckworth from the helicopter and then carried her through a field of six-foot-tall grass. When they finally reached safety, they realized that though Duckworth had lost half the blood in her body, miraculously, remarkably, she was still alive. And now, thanks to prosthetics, she is mobile and active to this very day. When asked how she felt about the personal risk her fellow soldiers took to save her, Major Duckworth said this, you have to get up every day and seek to live in such a way as to be worthy of that kind of effort and sacrifice. We will never be worthy of Jesus' sacrifice for us. But we can't be inspired by it. We could be inspired by this sacrifice so much that like Simon of Cyrene and the members of his family, it forever changes us. Thanks be to God for God's great love. And thanks be to God for showing us love in and through Jesus, the one who was crucified. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you that in Jesus you willingly went to the cross. Nobody made you do it. In fact, as you said in the Gospel of John, you, the good shepherd, Lord Jesus, you lay down your life voluntarily. Thank you for doing that. Thank you for sacrificing yourself for us so that we might experience forgiveness of our own sin and live forever with you. God, I pray that during this Lenten season, your Holy Spirit would continue to move in us and inspire us in such a way that we would embody your love to all whom we encounter. We ask all these things in Jesus' name.